It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We bring you updates from the front lines in Ukraine and the latest developments in the world of diplomacy. Our guest today is Paul Nyland, founder of Lifeline Ukraine, a suicide prevention hotline based in the country. In today's episode, we talk a lot about mental health and specifically issues of dependency, addiction and suicide. We are not experts, but if you're in need of help, please do seek professional, qualified mental health advice. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday the 2nd of March, one year and six days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Paul Nyland, founder of Lifeline Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from on the front lines in Ukraine. Hello, David. Hello, everybody. So last night there was a Russian missile strike in the city of Zaporizhia, Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia, brought down at least three floors of a five-storey building, an apartment block, people killed and uh, and wounded. The building was almost completely destroyed. The, the pictures you see on our, on our website and social media and elsewhere, it's just an apartment block that's been, that's been demolished. I mean, there's nothing, nothing nearby of any military significance. It's just another one of these random, random strikes that, uh, that are taking lives. So, you know, a continuation of the pattern there. Elsewhere, President Zelensky has has praised his country for surviving the winter. He said it was very difficult, but um, they've overcome the winter, able to provide Ukraine with power and heat. His foreign minister, Dmitry Kaleba, he hailed the first day of spring as another, quote, major defeat, unquote, for Putin, and said, we survived the most difficult winter in our history. It was cold and dark, but we were unbreakable. Uh, so on the other side, what's happening? So Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of Wagner Group, he's posted on Telegram. He says that uh, that they have nearly reached the centre of Bakhmut. Um, he has quote he's a film of some. I mean, we we, we presume they're Wagner Wagner mercenaries flying a flying a flag. And um, Prigozhin says the lads are mucking about, shooting home video. They brought this from Bakhmut this morning, practically the centre of the city. So well done, Yevgeny. I mean, it's taking what six or seven months, and you're practically at the centre. I mean, it's just. It, it is awful. I don't, I'm not making light of the violence there. I'm making light of these ridiculous claims that Bakhmut has any operational significance anymore. And it's taken, as I say, Wagner has been at it for months. They've lost thousands Russian Russian regular forces, which are now mainly conscripts and mobilised forces, have also been pushed up there in recent weeks. They've they've lost hundreds, we think, as well in this uh, in this city. 
and it's just a, it's just a continuation of of watching Russia with no ideas. They've got nothing else they can do. They can't put anything together on the ground. They are just up and at them. And I've used the phrase uh, very glibly in the past, saying that all they can do is is pulverise the place and then stick a flag on top of it. Well, that's literally what they've done today in, in this video from Wagner. They've got a flag and they've stuck a flag on a load of rubble that used to be a, used to be a city. Um, but it's still very opaque. We don't quite know what's happening in, in Bakhmut. We don't know if... if the, uh, if Wagner have taken it or if Ukrainian forces have withdrawn um, but it's still extremely violent and um, and for Russia just as pointless as it has been for the last few months for Ukraine they, they are making Russia pay very very dearly for every inch of soil they, they take there so it's I wouldn't say it's pointless there the, the cost is high we think um, but not a pointless military activity if it is causing the, the enemy to, to wear itself down. And as Napoleon said, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. So I think that's what Ukraine have been doing for the last uh, few months against uh, Wagner and the Russian forces in Bakhmut. Elsewhere, this this odd story that um, you need to be aware of because you'll catch you'll catch bits and pieces spraying off it. So, so Russia has said that Ukrainian saboteurs have attacked border villages. This is the border in Chernihiv region. So we're talking northeast, a couple of hundred k's northeast of Kiev, that, that, that border area there. A couple of films posted this morning on Telegram, um, a group calling itself the Russian Volunteer Corps, um, which also uh, which calls itself the RVK. We spell corps with a C in, in English, but they in Russian it's with a K. So you'll see references to RVK as well. There's two videos. One's geolocated to the village of Sushani in Bryansk Oblast. This is 80 kilometres northeast from Chernihiv, Chernihiv in Ukraine. And this is so 200 kilometres northeast of Kiev. The other video, um, not geolocated yet, but reportedly from the village of Lyubyshan, which is 20 k's further north of Sushani. Now, I've, I've been on Google Maps and used my, uh, used my powers of street view. And yeah, the first one does look to be um, Sushani. This is about um, a kilometre maybe a k and a half across the border from ukraine it's hard, i mean it's not a it's not a grand metropolis so shiny as far as i can tell um i mean it's got a paved road but that it's not it's not great it's i mean it's, it's basically a one horse town with a shortage of horses as far as i can tell um but in these films the one in the one that is geolocated to Sushani, we see two men holding up a flag, symbols I've not seen before, but are purportedly this Russian volunteer corps. Uh, they are speaking. I was looking at this with the war translated site, which is usually reliable. Um, so the translation says that this, this one of the men says, "We are the fighters from the RVK, uh, the uh, Russian volunteer corps. We are filming this video from Bryansk Oblast. We came here not as saboteurs, but as a liberation army to the native land. Unlike Putin's army of uh, executors and rapists, we do not fight civilians. We came to liberate you. We're calling you to arm and fight against Putin's." The Kremlin's bloody regime. Glory to RDK. Death to the Kremlin. Tyrant, unquote. Now, in the other film, supposedly taken, like, say, 20 k's north outside a clinic in Lubishan, there's two different men, uh, same flag. And one of them is quoted as saying, so, friends, it happened. The Russian Volunteer Corps crossed the state border of the Russian Federation. The proof is right behind my back. And with that, he turns and points to the sign outside the clinic. He then continues, we do not fight the civilians. We do not kill the unarmed. Keep this in mind. Now it's time for the regular Russian citizens to realise they are not slave, slaves. Start a mutiny. Fight. OK, end of quote. So what's happening here? Is this real? Is it a false flag 
by Russia to justify mobilization or any kind of any other any other action. Um, I mean, Putin today, this well, on Thursday afternoon, Russia time, he has said the incident is a terrorist attack. He says it's yet another crime. He said they infiltrated the border area and opened fire on civilians. They fired on a civilian car and there were children. They still fired on it. Uh, his spokesman has said that they're going to call a meeting of the Security Council to discuss the incident. And uh, Russia's intelligence agency have claimed a group of Ukrainian saboteurs attacked two border villages while Kremlin-linked outlets reported that hostages have been taken. So they've gone big on it in, in Russia. Um, Ukraine have said it's... Uh, well, Mikhailo Podolyak, who's the presidential advisor, President Zelensky's advisor, he says the story about a Ukrainian sabotage group in Russia is a classic deliberate provocation. Russia wants to scare its own people to justify an attack on another country and the growing poverty after the year of war, unquote. Right, what's my, what's my view on this? And I've been chatting to the guys around the office here this morning about it. So we see these we see these people, two videos, each with two two people in it. None of them are in, in any kind of uniform uniform, i.e. it's all the same. There's a mixture of green, white, black, Arctic camouflage, loads of other stuff. One in fact two people are wearing groin protectors. Now groin protectors are these big triangular shaped um bits of body armor that you that you have over your groin in your in your groin you have uh, running down each leg you've got the femoral artery if you get hit there with a bullet or shrapnel or anything like that you can lose a a huge amount of blood and it is very very difficult to stem the the blood of that you have to basically have to stand on someone's leg put all your weight on it to to stem the uh, stem the flow of blood from a from a femoral artery uh, injury so that groin protector needs to be over your groin right we see two people here with groin protectors over their stomachs so they're wearing the kit in the wrong place they've got minimal if any other body armor and there's something under one one person's chest webbing but it, i mean it looks more paintball-y than than anything else they are carrying ak variant weapons and grenade launchers but they're also carrying civilian head torches civvy woolen hats they've got random carabiners hanging off their kit some person one is wearing a, a headset i with for the radio that's good Someone else is wearing ear defenders, you know, which is not, not so good. You can't really hear the radio if you're wearing a set of ear defenders. They've got straps all over the place. One person's wearing a GoPro or, well, OK, I can't see the brand name, but it's, it's a civilian helmet-mounted camera. All the kit is very clean. It very, the clothing is all very clean. And above and beyond that, there is an abundance of yellow tape on their body and on their weapons, around their helmet, etc., etc. So what... What's going on here is these these men are saying they are Russian, the Russian Volunteer Corps, but they're wearing yellow tape, identifying as um, you know fighting on the side of Ukraine. Now, why would you do that if you're a partisan unit inside Russia? Because there are no other Ukrainian troops around there that might shoot at you, such that you want to say, "Oi, mush, I'm on your side." So you wouldn't need to identify yourself as Ukraine in Russia. Um, and if there are any other Russian forces in the area, if you're going to go and you know, smash up the local barracks, for example, you'd want them to think that you are Russian. If indeed you are, these guys are saying they are, they are Russian. So you, if you wore any identification tape at all, you'd probably wear the red tape that Russian forces have been wearing. Because if it, you know, in the chaos of a, of a contact, you know, a fire, firefight, you want the Russian blokes in the, in the barracks to think that you're on their side. So as well as you shouting, hey, don't shoot, you know, I'm, I'm on your side, I'm, I'm Russian. You want them to see, uh, and they're probably not wearing identification tape because they're inside Russia. So they'd want to see you, if you've got any tape, wearing something that they recognise from, from over the border. 
So uh, surely you'd wear the Russian stuff. So I don't see why they are wearing why they are wearing Ukrainian identifiers. And if they are Ukrainian, as as Russia is saying, then these videos we've all seen videos over the over the last year. How many Ukrainian videos have you seen that do not end with the person making the video saying Slava Ukraine, glory to Ukraine? Every single video I have seen made by a soldier fighting for Ukraine ends with them going Slava Ukraine, right? That doesn't happen here. So if these guys are Ukrainian, they need to work on their strategic comms and messaging because that, that's not how you finish these videos. So I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. I'm inclined to think that, well, I don't think these are regular soldiers for starters. They might be a local partisan irregular unit that's just got a, a mishmash of kit with, with I don't know, ear defenders and woolen hats and and all the rest of it. They clearly don't know how to wear military gear, uh, how to carry themselves around around weapons and, and all the rest of it. They, do, they are not soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean that they are not Ukrainian. That doesn't mean they're not Russian. That doesn't mean that they're not the Russian Volunteer Corps. All I'm saying is that they are not, I mean, they don't, they're not fighters, right? They've got over the, they are over the border. They are 1K inside the Russian border. Whether or not they, they started there, I, I do not know. I'd be extremely surprised if these are um, either Ukrainian troops who have gone over the border. Bearing in mind, months ago, Ukraine, when they got to the border, when they pushed Russia out of the north from, from north of Kiev, they took videos of themselves at, at the border area along Belarus and further to the east in Chernihiv Oblast. They took videos at the, at the border um, to show there's Russia. So, you know, they, they've, they've done this before without all the fanfare of saying it's, it's something new. So I don't think this is, I don't think these are Ukrainian troops. I don't really put much stock in these are the Russian volunteer corps who are trying to incite some revolution inside Russia. I, I, at the moment, in a very opaque situation where there's a paucity of, of, of reliable information. So, you know, I'm happy to be corrected as more information comes out. I, th- I think this looks staged. I think this looks um, as if it's by by Russia. It's, it's, it's timely, um, considering the, the recent comments from Putin and others. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think we, we need to take note of this, have a look at it, but, but ask yourself the questions. I mean, go and have a look at the videos and, and just ask yourself, does it, does it seem real? And it certainly doesn't to me. Well, thanks for that, Dom. Um, yes, as you said, it's an opaque situation and something we'll definitely find out more about in the next few days. So I'm sure we'll come back to this. Um, can I go to Francis Dernley? What's the latest uh, in the world of politics and international diplomacy? Thanks, David. Well, before I jump into the diplomatic stuff, I do just want to comment on the story Don was just reporting on there. I mean, call me a cynic, but I do tend to subscribe to the view that there's no such thing as a coincidence in Putin's Russia. And the fact that we saw yesterday, as I reported on, Putin talking to the FSB about the importance of doubling down on Western activity, Western saboteurs, Ukrainian uh, activity designed to harm Russia. And then we see this within 24 hours. It just doesn't feel quite right to me, particularly given the caveats and the question marks posed by uh, Dom's analysis. And indeed, he and I were looking at the video for a while earlier and just there was so many things that raised alarm bells that I think it's highly, highly sceptical that those people are, are, are who they say they are. But n- no doubt we will be reporting on that again when we hear more on it. Uh, of course, now we are in the G20. Uh, it's in New Delhi. It's taking place at the moment. Of course, India have perhaps had a slightly uneasy 
role in all of this since the war began. They've not been one of those countries that's been willing to outrightly condemn Russia's invasion. They have abstained in a lot of key UN votes. But not only that, they've been purchasing a lot of cheap Russian oil. And so uh, it's, I think there's a little bit of unease I sense in the air amongst some of the people who, in the, from the sort of more Western perspective, who are attending uh, the conference. They feel that this is a uh, uh, not the, the let's say the friendliest place in terms of finding sympathy for the Western argument that this, you know fundamental international rules-based order has been broken and that Russia must lose out. And indeed, those remarks were echoed by Georgia Maloney this morning. She said that she Italy still fully supports Kiev's territorial integrity and uh, stress the needs to find a just peace. But I think the biggest sort of headlines coming out of this really and, and sort of capturing, I think, the sense of the mood was summarised by US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who, of course, we've spoken about a lot this week and particularly yesterday in the context of the Central Asian state. He said, unfortunately, this meeting has again been marred by Russia's unprovoked and unjustified war against Ukraine. And what's most interesting is that we now understand that there was a very brief meeting between him and Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister. That was not expected. It was expected they would they would not talk to each other. I think the last time they spoke to each other was in Bali back in July. So quite a long time. But there was a brief encounter. And this has not been officially reported, but it's come from an anonymous source who said that there was a brief conversation between the two where the US committed its support to Ukraine, pressed Russia to reverse its decision to suspend the New START nuclear treaty and urged the release of US prisoner Paul Whelan. We don't know what the Russian response was to that, but there was some kind of encounter. The other big thing that came out of the G20 so far is that China have joined Russia in refusing to support a demand for Moscow to cease hostilities in Ukraine. There was, I think, you know, I think people knew that there would be that this would be vetoed, but there was plans for there to be a joint statement from the G20. But that, as I say, has been vetoed by China and Russia. Part of the reason for this uh this, as I should say, that this uh, was intended to be a joint statement uh, demanding Russia's complete and unconditional withdrawal from the territory of Ukraine. But I say the reason that that has faltered is in part because of Russia's insistence on an investigation into the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline last year. There's been lots of conversations happening about this recently. The Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch wrote an article on his Substack where he argued that the US was responsible for blowing up Nord stream that I should say is highly highly contested um, and uh, the, the the orthodox view does seem to be still that Russia were responsible for this for uh, geopolitical reasons at the time then being able to not uh, be blamed for uh, cut, cutting off uh, Europe from the energy supplies but we've covered that quite a lot already um, the other reason that this joint declaration has not got off the ground, although I don't think it would have gone under the, off the ground in any circumstances, but anyway, regardless, um, uh, Russia have said that West is burying this Black Sea grain deal. Uh, they've been highly critical of the way that the West has not eased sanctions on Russia as a consequence of this deal and uh, feel that as a consequence of that, that's a reason why they uh, they, they didn't want there to be uh, uh, any sort of unilateral uh, condemnation of their actions, not that they would have uh, accepted one anyway. But uh, yes, so these are the reasons why China at the very least has supported Russia in this. The... Uh 
I should say as well that this, I think the significance of the grain deal here and to some extent Nord Stream is an attempt to, for Russia to say that it is trying to do its best for the world economy, that it wants to reopen its supplies of oil and gas to the wider world. It wants to... Uh, have make sure that grain gets to Africa and to the emerging economies and wants this, this sort of free trade to prosper. But it's the West that's putting these sanctions on them. And why is it does it matter that they're saying this now at this G20? Because it's hosted in India. A lot of the emerging economies, of course, India is being one of them. This is appealing messages to them, this idea of being connected to the world economy and not wanting things to falter as a consequence of Ukraine. So it's all very, very carefully targeted geopolitical positioning by Russia, I think. Um, so that's the context in the G20. And just a quick update on, of course, uh, Lukashenko being in China, which we've been covering now for the last couple of days. Some more quite strong remarks coming out of there. These of both countries have pledged to work together to fight grassroots democracy movements. I know it's striking that they would admit it in those terms, but they, indeed they have. Uh, this is, of course, coming off just months after Beijing faced angry protests against COVID restrictions and three years after the Belarusian leader was almost toppled by protests. So they've signed a defence deal and committed to crushing colour revolutions. And that's the term that they've used. Now, colour revolutions is actually an old Kremlin term, I believe, that was coined in the early noughties to deride opposition protests in former Soviet states. And they've said they're going to work together in an attempt to try and quash these. Quite how that will happen, I don't know, but they've uh, they've agreed to that. And there's also been further warm words into how the West is trying to plunge the world into a global conflict and these two are going to work together to stop it. They've signed a flurry of details, most of them non-binding, uh, as well as a political statement that, as I say, has pledged to fight these grassroots democratic movements that threaten the legitimate, inverted commas, um, regimes. So that's the lay of the land in the diplomatic space. A fair bit happening, but I know I always say that, David. Thanks very much, Francis. And I would say to any listeners who didn't hear yesterday's podcast, we had our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, whose specialisation is uh, the Central Asian states. And he talked for a long and fascinating time about the relations between China and its geopolitical influence on the Central Asian states. So if you haven't heard that, I would recommend you go back and, and listen to James. Well, thank you, Dom and Francis. I'd love to welcome our guest for today, Paul Nyland. Um, Paul, uh, we introduced you at the beginning, but would you tell us yourself a little about your career, your life and how you came to Ukraine? Sure, with pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you on the podcast. My name is Paul Nyland. I'm the founder of Ukraine's National Suicide Prevention Hotline. I'm also a journalist as well, widely published in various different titles. And I've been in Ukraine for 20 years now. Well, thanks, Paul. Let's talk about Lifeline Ukraine then. What is it? Could you go into some detail of what it actually is and how it functions? And tell us why, why did you found it? Why did it start? So when I was growing up in the UK, we all knew what the Samaritans was. We knew that that was the place to turn to if you found yourself in, in, in emotional hard times. And, and simply there was, there was never, until we created Lifeline Ukraine, there was never a suicide prevention hotline here. And I, I was asked to do this. We, we had a, a health minister at the time, Dr. Uliana Supran, She's something of a visionary. She's a very, very proactive woman. And, and you know, this was one of the things that, that was a, a project that she uh, conceived. And, and then they were casting around looking for somebody 
who who would take responsibility for this and and you know one one day it fell to me through a simple uh, one line email where where I was copied and the minister just wrote bring Paul Nyland into the next meeting on this so when when we were first established our first goal was to prevent suicides particularly in the veteran community this is the same everywhere the world over people who have seen active service they're at a higher risk of potential suicidal ideation. You know, the first goal was to serve that community. And then when I was making my initial plans for Lifeline Ukraine, I said, we will evolve into the national suicide prevention hotline for everybody in Ukraine. And that is what we've become. So in in your view, what was the the state of mental health provision? I mean, you know, speaking for myself, it does feel like in the UK, there's been something of a, a revolution in the past 20 years. So mental health is, is a topic that here in Ukraine is something that's really not being talked about as much as it should have been. And and again, if I go back to what was my initial planning when I, when I said that, you know, we would evolve into the national suicide prevention hotline for everybody. The other thing that I said um, or, or set out as one of my uh, goals was our, for, for, for us to be a catalyst for a national discussion on suicide in particular, but on mental health in, in general. If you were to go back to Soviet days, then, then you know, psychiatry was somehow used in, in a punitive way. And so it became something that uh, there was very much a stigma attached to and, and, and people don't want to talk about it. And so through the awareness work that we've been doing in the three and a half years of, of, of our existence, we've tried to bust a lot of uh, local myths ab- ab- about suicidal ideation and about mental health. And to be, as I say, that, that catalyst for a wider discussion, certainly in the last 12 months, it is absolutely something that has uh, got more nationwide recognition of something that, that is a national challenge and something that has to be uh, coordinated. And the First Lady, Olena Zelinskaya, um, is one of the people who's, who's kind of leading the charge in, in, in pushing forward this debate and talking about the importance of, of, of mental health support. So let's talk a little bit more about the last year. Have you found yourself doing different things as an organization have how have you been able as an organization to adapt to the challenges um and the the problems posed by by, by the full-scale invasion certainly the last year has brought about challenges in in many ways when we emerged from that I- initial phase where kiev was under attack and where places like irpin and butcher and uh, uh Janka had been occupied when life in Kiev, as that threat was lifted, r- returned to a, a new kind of normal, and we were looking at the horrors that that Russia had left behind in in those liberated areas, I, I understood then, you know, as I as I began looking at Lifeline Ukraine and and, and the challenges that it was going to face, I, I I knew that I needed to approach this more from a like a disaster management perspective. And, and in doing that, what I did was I, I, I broke down the, the the different kinds of questions that I felt that we, we were going to be facing. And, and I organized what, one of the things I love about my team is that is that they they thirst for knowledge all the time. Right. And and so I organized a series of training sessions in order to give us the tools to be able to better support, for example, people who've been displaced as a as a result of the war, whether they're internally displaced or whether they've become refugees in third countries. 8.8% in actual fact of the interactions that we have now are with Ukrainians who are overseas and they're through 
the, the, the kind of chat options that we offer support through as well. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we did a training session on, um, on how to better support young people. We did a, a, a we invited experts on sexual violence to, to tell my colleagues how if somebody phones us and they've, they've been a victim of these terrible, terrible war crimes at the hands of these barbarians, um, you know, we, we, we knew that we would be facing this. And I remember reading an article about the, the, the psychologists who are dealing with victims of, of, of rape. And, and, and it was saying, you know, like th- these people had come to a place where they were saying, I just don't want to live anymore. And, I, and I'm, you know, I knew that it, therefore is going to come under the umbrella of Lifeline Ukraine. And so that was one of the training courses that, that we've also gone through as well. It, it's been an incredibly challenging 12 months as well in so far as the demand for support from Lifeline Ukraine has tripled. Prior to the 24th of February, we were averaging a thousand calls or, or chat interactions per month and now we're at three thousand calls per month and uh, as i'm sure everyone understands you know that 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 workload it, it's a big burden on my colleagues and i was actually meeting with one of them today to to look at how we can kind of share the burden between us a, a, a little bit more efficiently as well so i mean we, we've had to adapt and but the most important thing is that we maintained our our operations throughout all of this, 24 hours a day and seven days a week. We, we've had no gaps, no outages in providing support to Ukrainians. And my, my team are absolute heroes because, you know, whether they've stayed here or whether they've moved overseas, everybody's also had their own personal challenges. But they're all hugely committed and dedicated and loyal to the mission that we have, which is you know, any any time of the day or night to, to, to answer that call and to help somebody who's struggling. You you talked a little bit about some of the training you've had this year for your team to deal with the, the, the war crimes committed. Just on that, I mean, do you see do you see patterns in the cases that you're encountering? Would you tell us a little bit more about the kind of things you, your, your team are, are facing? I know this is an incredibly difficult topic, so I understand that this is a hard thing to talk about. It, it is clear that there are certain aspects of of thinking that have that have manifested amongst the Ukrainian population as a result of of, of this phase of the war and and the hardships that we've been through another thing for example that we 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 doubled down on our knowledge of we, we we'd already paid attention to this before but it, it, it's helping bereaved people a, another thing that we did and as i said initially we came together to be there to provide support for for the military we did another training session that was spe- specifically about ptsd as well to kind of refresh our knowledge that we'd we'd equipped ourselves with right at the beginning three and a half years ago yeah i mean we we we, we see patterns and and what i'm currently in the process of doing i'm you know as, as as the founder and director one of my main tasks is is always looking for the next grant and looking for for future funding but you know in in the grant proposals that i've got in with with various bodies right now we've got an inclusion of further fees for trainers and 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 i haven't specifically written in the grant proposal what the subjects of those trainings are going to be because that's going to be driven by my analysis of the topics of why people are, are calling lifeline ukraine but you know i mean specifically if you if you look at, at, at the, i mentioned doing a training for people who've been displaced in, in each of those instances 
you know, that is a person or that is a family that has lost all of their familiarity, everything that they know and are used to, their their school, their friends, their job, their apartment, you know, every everything that they had around them is now gone. And, and that's, you know, a, a, it, it's a very difficult challenge for an individual, but then you have to look at the macro view on that as well and see just how large that problem is. There are 7 million internally displaced Ukrainians, and there are another 5 million or 4.5 million, the figures fluctuate, who, who are overseas now. So, you know, we, we're talking about 12 million instances of that particular kind of trauma that I just described for you. So it's, it, it's yeah, it's the specifics of what the problem is, and then it's the size of the problem as well in terms of the number of people it affects. You, you mentioned your, your team and their work. Would you be able to paint us a little bit of a picture? You know, how, how many people are working on this? What, what, does, what does the organization look like? To, um, if you could just describe it for our listeners. Uh, the organization from the management perspective is, is relatively small. It, it's myself and I have one colleague who's my project coordinator who I work very, very closely with. The, the bulk of the team are the consultants. It's, it's the people who are doing the work of, of answering the calls or answering the chats. And there are 22 consultants. Um, because we because we came together to help veterans, I, I, I learned from the United States, from the, the Veterans Administration in the United States, that a peer-to-peer support structure is what works best. So, so I initially tried to, to, to recruit a team of veterans. And the very first resume that was sent to me, the, the covering email said, I know you want veterans. I'm not. I'm a psychologist, but my husband's a veteran. And, and, and I replied to her and I said, Sveta, you sound perfect. And... And what actually happened was we had this kind of hybrid team that came together that were were veterans who had an interest in psychology or qualifications in psychology and psychologists who had an interest in veterans affairs. And, you know, with that kind of blended uh, team, because everybody, you know, has an interest in or not not an interest in, but a a, a determination in, in every instance that they come up against in their work at Lifeline Ukraine, a, a determination to help people. When we, when we moved away from our in, uh, original mandate and, and when we began being the support structure for absolutely anybody, not a single person complained about that. Not, not one, you know? And, and I mean, they, 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 I remember one of my veteran colleagues after a particular consultation, who was a, a young man whose girlfriend had, you know, university age, and his girlfriend just split up with him, his first real love, you know? And, and my colleague and I were discussing afterwards, and he says, get us more training so that we know how to help younger people, so that we know the kind of topics that might be affecting them or troubling them. So, you know, and then on the 23rd of February, the, the, the eve of the, the all-out invasion, my, my military colleagues were called back into, into, the, into the armed forces. And so, you know, our, our human resources were stretched. And, and then again, as I said, you know, people were, were taking their own decisions and maybe moving to safer places or, or, or having to flee from places. One of my colleagues lives in, in Irpin, which, which was occupied, you know. And so, you know, some of those guys who went back into the military have since been discharged. They had served between 2014 and 2022 in the, 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 the defense of the Donbass from the Russian invasion that began back then. And so having, you know, previously served, they'd gone straight back in, but now they've been demobilized, some of them, and they've, they've happily come back into the team and they, they continue to, to, to be valuable colleagues doing absolutely essential and life-saving work. 
What does, I mean, you've, you've mentioned some of the things you'd like to do, but what could you give us your sense of what the next year looks like for, for you and your team? I, I was with one of my best friends actually on Sunday night and we went for dinner. I, I don't get to see him particularly often. We went for dinner and I was talking to him about um, this, this growth in demand and he just looked at me and he said, and it will only continue to grow. And, and, and he's right. And, and it grows for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, since commencing our work, we, we, we had to build up our reputation. We had to become a, a nationally known entity so that all Ukrainians knew that we were there for them. So, you know, it's, it's increasing awareness of the existence of Lifeline Ukraine is one thing, but it's, it's, it's the increased burden that is being placed on, on every individual. And, uh, you know, I, I don't mind talking about my own personal feelings. What, what gets me, and, and as I said earlier on, nothing compared to you guys who do this professionally, but one of the hats that I wear is that I'm a journalist. And so I, I consume a lot of news. And, and what gets me is, is the constant exposure to images of destruction. You know, one of, one of your co-hosts earlier on was talking about the, the, the shelling of an apartment building in Zaporizhia last night in, in which, you know, three floors of a residential building were wiped out by an S-300 missile and four people have been killed. Like when, when you see that and you see that every single day, day after day, you know, it, it, it's not just the destruction of places like Bakhmut and Vuglidar and, and, and the, the, the terrible fighting that's going on there. It's, it's the strikes against innocence as well, like the, the, the one that happened in Dnepro a couple of months ago, killing, I, I think the final death toll, death toll was 47 people. But, but an, an entire section of, of an apartment block, and there's, there's one actually in Borodjanka to the north of Kiev, exactly the same, like a massive hole blown through the middle of this by the, these, these relentless waves of Russian attacks. And, 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 and that, that's the thing that... That 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 I find most difficult to 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 process. It's it's the constant images of destruction and and you know as the country continues to go through this phase of the war and until the victory, we're, we're going to keep seeing that. And I think after the victory, then you know from the one side there's going to be there's going to be a, a a euphoria but from the other side you know many people are just taking each day at a time and doing what they can to contribute to the national struggle in one way or another and I, and i think after ukraine's victory that's when there's going to be a time of 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 a national reckoning of of what we've gone through and and what the toll has been, you know, one of the things that we don't know because the numbers are not published are are, are what what are the losses of, of of Ukrainian military and you know we all have many friends who are who are out there who are who are fighting for us and we you know we all live on a daily basis with the dread that we're going to get a message that that we we've lost someone that we're close to and. It, 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 it's difficult on many levels. It will continue to be so. And, and, you know, Lifeline Ukraine must always exist. It must always be here to provide support to anybody who needs it. What the volume of support is going to be six months from now, 12 months from now, I, I can't begin to predict. But, but I know that we will continue to, to, to manage the organization in a way that means that no Ukrainian who seeks help in in a in a dark hour would would not be able to access our support 
Thanks very much for that, Paul. Um, Dom and Francis have been listening to this. Um, Dom, can I bring you in? I know you have a question. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Paul, hi, uh, Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. I just wonder if we can talk a little bit about your team. And I'm coming from the point of view of the military, British military veterans perspective of what happened as we went through, well, just generally, but especially through the Iraq-Afghanistan years. And I just I just wonder, I mean, you said three, you get 3,000 calls a month and you've got 22 consultants. And I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a workload. And the mental health landscape is is myriad, confusing, very intricate. And and I just wonder, I saw it from the British perspective, where we see people and agencies that are spread too thin. And from a from a genuine desire to help, and may, maybe the individuals are not aware of, of where to point the individual seeking help, or maybe the specialist help required doesn't exist. And I've, I've seen instances of, of people being given advice or help that's actually detrimental to what they need. So I just wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the qualifications your team have and and what they how they respond to times when they when they they can't help the individual on the end of the phone. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the. That's that's a very technical question. The, as I said, the the veterans that 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 came to join Lifeline Ukraine at the beginning all had an interest in psychology or or qualifications in psychology, and and those that did not, we we ensured that we would help them to gain them. And you know, it it's it's maybe not a a, a degree or, or 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 whatever, but but we put them through training courses to boost their knowledge uh, of, of what would be the not only the things that they would come into contact with but also importantly managing themselves and managing their own health and their their own self-care you know which is something that that is one one thing that psychologists know is is, is extremely essential for for them to be able to continue to provide help to others and, and and so one of the other things that that we have and when when we first began actually it was an an internal position and it was a part of my management team i had a residential psychological consultant who was responsible for overseeing the the health of the team and making sure that nobody was close to burnout or or, or anything like that there's there's obviously a burden on their shoulders because of the nature of the the work that they do and so we we have this rather than an internal management position now we have an external supervisor who works with the team in group sessions and individual sessions on, on a very regular basis which is also a part of you know our commitment to our colleagues and making sure that that they're managing to cope with the the, the pressures that are that are upon them. An interesting part of your question at the end there, Dom, was 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 how people cope when, for example, they've not been able to help somebody. In in the vast majority of cases, when a person reaches out to Lifeline Ukraine, it's because they they understand that they actually do want help. And and I mean, I would say it's the same with the Samaritans as well, or you know, Lifeline Australia, or or you know, any suicide prevention hotline globally is going to experience the same thing. So so it's actually one of the posters that I have in my office, which which came from our very first training course that we that we did when we got going. It, it's good that you've called. It means that I have a chance to help you, right? So so somebody reaching out to Lifeline Ukraine is, is saying that things are hard and 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 give me a, give me a hand and and help me out but it, but another thing i remember i in in the in the planning days when i was when i was building this i have 
a particular friend who who would send me a link when when there was a news story about a veteran suicide he would always send it to me and that would keep me focused and drive me on i i have to do this this is essential we must deliver this and and there was there was a story of a a, a veteran who took his life a few months after we'd opened and 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 i shared it on social media and 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 i said this, this one this is particularly tough because we could have helped him and we're, we're there specifically specifically for him and one of my friends who who was actually a volunteer with the the samaritans he, he wrote to me he says paul you cannot blame yourself because you will not save everybody and there's there's an organization in in the united kingdom which is called the zero suicide alliance and and the way that they explain their name is 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 zero suicides an attainable goal no it isn't but if we're going to put a a a number on what is i hate to use the term but an acceptable number of suicides that should be zero the the acceptable number of suicides is zero and 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 we start from there i'm looking at the samaritans website where they have their what they call step the samaritans training and engagement programs and i just i just i'm keen to hear more about the qualifications your team have because i'm i'm concerned that well-meaning amateurs can do can do a lot of damage in this area and i I want to hear that you're not well-meaning amateurs that you're properly qualified people providing specialist accurate advice or directing elsewhere if it's beyond your scope so the um the the training program for the samaritans is is enough they believe with their 50 years of experience to to equip a person to be able to go through a call with somebody who's dealing with a difficult emotional period the the training that i and i don't know how many hours the samaritans training runs for but the the training that i organized for my team was initially the lead psychologist and the ceo of the israeli suicide prevention hotline which has also been in operation for 50 years in actual fact they came over and did two days of initial training with my team and then that was in september of 2019 we opened in october of 2019 then in december of that year the vice president of the national suicide prevention hotline in the united states came to Kiev for four days. We were already operational then, so we couldn't have everybody all in one room at the same time. So we, we did two two-day training sessions with her. And then our third international training session had experts from Belgium, Norway, and another one from the United States. And again, that was two full days for everybody. And, and, and we did two sessions each with half of half of the team. And and then, you know, on top of the three and a half years now of experience that we have um, of operating in this sphere, which, you know, is unparalleled. Nobody else has anything like that kind of experience. Again, I I refer back to the the, the many trainings that we've been doing. And prior to these external trainings to respond to the specific needs because of this phase of the war we've been doing lots of internal training sessions as well because one because my team loved to learn and two because individually they've all got their different specializations so one one for example is a a special a specialist in addiction in drug addiction and alcohol addiction and so he would share his knowledge with the with with the rest of the team i i i 
humbly submit that that therefore means that we're we're, we're not well-meaning amateurs that that we, we are not only extremely well qualified and prepared for the challenges that we face but 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 we have the the experience of doing it as well and and the other thing that i'd say as well is that you know i mean in in terms of the team they are almost wholly intact from the very very beginning we our, our uh, turnover rate of staff is 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 very 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 low and and so it it is that full you know period of experience that that basically anybody answering the phone at lifeline lifeline ukraine has okay but just just to finish off on maple are you confident that your team have the experience to know when they are right at the edge of their jigsaw and they need to stop and hand over to someone more specialised or say with the best will in the world to the individual in distress at the end of the phone, I'm sorry, I can't help you and I know someone who can or or maybe even I do not know how you can get help. But I, if we go further, I might, I, I, it might be worse. Do, do you, are you confident your team know where that line is? I'm absolutely confident in that. And, and anecdotally, a conversation that I had, which was with a former CEO of Lifeline Australia, days after my first meeting at the, the Ministry of Health, which, which is what convinced me that, that I should take on the responsibility to do this, was, 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 I, was I, I learned that in suicide prevention, there's something called a 15-minute golden window. And if you begin a conversation with somebody in a critical situation, and, and you're still talking to that person 15 minutes later, then you can pretty much say that you've diffused the situation and yes, you have actually saved that life. And, and that, you know, that, that, that one thing that I was told, as I, as I say, that was, that was one of the things that convinced me to do this. And then when we did our, our, our second training session with the expert from the United States, her name's Dr. April Natural, um, I, I understood why that is. And the, the thing is, is that when, when a person has either suicidal ideation or, or suicidal intent and a plan to end their life, it is an extremely emotional sense. And, and, and what we have that's deeper than our emotions is we have our instinct. And so what we're doing in that 15 minutes is we're, we're helping the caller, we're, we're helping them to bring down this heightened state of emotion so that their instinct, their survival instinct is taking over in them again. And, and that's what becomes dominant. And, you know, having spent years of sitting in the call center with my colleagues, listening to them, handling these calls day in and day out, you know, I, I, I know that we can move. It's, it's, it's quite a touching thing in actual fact to, to witness, but, but we can move in the space of maybe 20, 25 minutes from dealing with somebody who is wailing with tears and short of breath. And, and you know, we'll start doing breathing exercises with them. And, and uh, you know, that's the outset of a, of a really difficult call, a crisis call, a crisis intervention. And, and within 20, 25 minutes, honestly, we can be actually sharing a joke with that person who has called us. They've now calmed the, the, themselves down. They're, they're now feeling better it, it, the, the, the dark feelings may return and they may call us back two or three hours down the down the line right in particular if they've had another few shots of vodka or something like that there's there's almost always alcohol at play but but we really can move to a a, a place where we've 
if we're able to, to, to share a joke with somebody. But, but the other th- part of the answer that I want to give you as well, because you, you were saying like, you know, maybe somebody from my team would say, I, I don't know how to help you. One of the things that we started building up from day one was a database of external resources that we refer people to. And they, they might be national resources, they might be local resources. It, it might be for a very specific thing. We, we had a period which I, I, I don't know exactly how this came up, but we had a period where one of the concerns that was very often being expressed was, was financial hardship. And, and so we were very often giving out a number to an organization, a volunteer organization that helps people restructure their finances. You know, it, I mean, so th- that's as an example. We, we have a lot of different resources that we can refer people to for longer term support or to resolve an underlying issue that's brought them to this emotional state. After we've done, what, what we are is we're an emergency service. We're there to help that person in that instance. And, and then we, we, we try to equip them or, or, or di- direct them towards resources where they can find further support and longer term support. Thank you very much, Paul and Dom. Francis, anything from you? Thanks, David. Paul, just one question from me, turning to, of course, the people that are making these calls. Who are they in in as a whole? I mean, do you get a sense that these are mostly civilians? Are they soldiers? Are they young? Are they old? I just want to hear a little bit more about the general trends of the kind of calls that you're receiving. So the vast majority are civilians. Um, we, we are very well known in military circles because when we first began our online awareness work was, was targeted towards that audience specifically. And, and then as we came to evolve, then we, we shifted what was our social media messaging and, and who our target audiences were online. And so, yeah, the, the vast majority are civilians. We, because we're well known in, in military circles, we continue to provide support to anybody, either a veteran or somebody who is serving on the front lines. We, we get those kind of calls as well. But, but I think, you know, to, to break down the, the kind of calls that we get, we, 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 we tend to support a lot of older people who are lonely. And, and I remember, for any Ukrainian or, or Russian language speakers that are, that, that are listening to this, I, I remember one day, I, I used to read our, our, our call report on a daily basis. I, I wanted to, to, to myself understand exactly the answer to that question that you're asking, Francis. What are the reasons why people are calling us? And, and a couple of months in, I, I saw this word written in Ukrainian, and I said, what's this? Samotnist, I don't understand that. I, I'm, I'm, a, but, but I'm, I'm stronger in Russian, right? So my, my colleagues know this, and they all speak to me in Russian. Well, they did, anyway. We kind of switched to Ukrainian more or less nowadays. But, but, but she looked me and she says in, in Russian Adinochistva. And I said, I have no idea what that is. I've never encountered that word in, 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 in either Russian or Ukrainian. What is it? And she said, loneliness. You know, and that was that was one of the things that, that struck me about the value of the work that we're doing and the kind of support that we're providing. Just just that one word, you know, loneliness. And and, and that's what we're doing in many instances when, when we get calls from, from older people. The the last grant that we've been operating under specifically asked us to support people up to the age of 35. And, and so it, it, we, we, again, adjusted our social media output in order to be reaching specifically who the, 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 the donor wanted us to reach. 
but but I also remember another conversation with a donor when when we were in our second grant, which was again directed towards the, the, the military. And it was one of my monthly meetings and one of my monthly reporting sessions with, with colleagues in Washington, D.C. And she said, look, she said, you know, we, we gave you this grant to support the military and you're doing that and you're doing that in big numbers. She said the fact that you support so many other people as well on top of that for us is added value. You know, so so, yeah, I, I, I do see and I've, I've analyzed it in recent months in in work that I've done with with a great group of consultants, both in Stockholm and, and in Bristol in the UK as well. We, we've analyzed the, the, the kind of support that we're providing and the reasons for the, the, the major reasons for, for the calls that we're getting. And, you know, I, it, 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 it fluctuates between 15 and 20 percent, 15 to 20 percent of our calls are cases where there is potentially an imminent threat to a, a person's life. But everything that we do is about suicide prevention. You know, when, when we're talking to somebody who is lonely and, and being a listening ear to that person, we're, we're helping them to not move for, further along what we call the continuum from, from suicidal ideation to, to suicidal intent. Um, and, and so all of our work, whatever the topic, topic may be, it, it's all ultimately about, about suicide prevention. Well, thank you, Dom and Francis, for those questions. And thank you, Paul, for your answers. Uh, we're at the end of our time today. So just very, very quickly, can I ask Dom, Francis and Paul for your final thoughts? Well, thank you, David. I'll be very brief. This is actually my last episode of the podcast for at least a week or so as I'm away from Telegraph Towers, hoping, amongst other things, to take some time to do some deep reading into some of the subjects that we've covered in the podcast recently. I just wanted to end by thanking everyone for the correspondence that we've received in recent weeks ever since we opened up the Ukraine pod email address. I mean, we just inundated every day with people who offer such fascinating and often generous remarks as well, but really fascinating insights into their respective subject interests, into things perhaps they know about specifically. We've even had people who've written who've said that they were present at some of these important meetings that we've described uh, on the podcast. So um, we can't reply to all of them. I'd like to very much and hopefully at some point we will be able to sit down together and spend a day where we do just plough through them. So do bear with us. But uh, I just wanted to put as a sort of pause before we do hopefully get round to that just to say thank you we do as we always say we do read every message we do use those messages to uh, decide how we're going to cover certain subjects the questions we're going to ask and they make us think differently about certain questions so I just wanted to reiterate that if we can't necessarily reply immediately you're not ignored we do really really appreciate it and it does shape how we think about this war so thank you and I will see you all well, you'll hear me all, hopefully, um, in, in just over a week's time. Thanks, Francis. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Um, what's your final thought for our listeners? My final thought is, is this. There was, there was an opinion survey amongst Ukrainians that, were, that was published last week, and 95% of Ukrainians are certain of our victory. And when you have that degree of certainty... I, 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 when you see that unity, that is the spirit that is going to defeat Russia. We, we don't know when. We don't know what the cost ultimately is going to be. But mark my words, Ukraine is going to win. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound 
at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. <laughs>